I'm Carlo Maria Palermo. I'm chair of Political Commission on Foreign and Security Policy uh, for the Federal Committee of Union European Federalists. I welcome our guests uh, and our uh, and our speakers for the important meeting of today about the uh, ongoing situation in Ukraine. Um, as you know, we have um, really uh, the war in Ukraine really is touching our uh, perception and our sensitiveness in this kind of very peculiar phase of European history. We really saw uh, an episode that was uh, really take its root in uh, recent European history, but that is really uh, risking to uh, move Europe and the world in a new uh, phase of international relation history. Um, actually, uh, uh, I welcome uh, our our speakers, our first speaker, uh, as Ms. Anna Schlest uh, from uh, from uh, the Director of Security Programs at Foreign Policy Council Ukrainian Press at Odessa. Welcome to be here. Welcome to be here from Ukraine. So uh, you have a floor, ma'am. Thank you. I uh, just before starting, I want to uh, kindly ask to every participant to keep the mic uh, shot and the video shot when the speakers are the and where the speaker is talking. And uh, I want to say as well that this meeting is actually um, provided uh, by uh, into the program, the operating grant provided by the European Commission. Thank you so much. And Ms. Schlest, you have the floor. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, I will not take a lot of time because I understand that we can talk for hours about the current situation and its implications. And uh, I understand that the debate that you would have would be more important even than just the basic information that I can uh, provide. All of you are watching uh, the current news, so you have quite a number of the information, but there are certain tendencies that I would like to undermine and probably to emphasize for the better understanding of the situation. As for now, we are at the day 34 of the uh, armed uh, aggression on the, uh, um, from the Russian Federation in Ukraine. But at the same time, then that is point number one, uh, Ukraine is emphasizing that it is not a new invasion. De facto, the war started eight years ago. It was just a little bit easier for many not to notice what had been happening or to forget what happened in February, uh, March, August uh, 2014. Because the Russian invasion and occupation of Ukrainian territories uh, started exactly in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and then the initial military actions in uh, Donbass. That's why what is, uh, has happened in February 2022 it's been just the new level and uh, even more brutal uh, violation of the international law and uh, uh, of the uh, uh, relations between the states, uh, open aggression according to all the statements that you can imagine, rather than just uh, something absolutely new. And uh, the price that all of us are paying now, it is uh, um, so high because for all these eight years, there've been quite a number of countries who preferred not to notice the um, uh, policies of uh, the Russian leadership uh, regarding Ukraine, but not only regarding Ukraine. Because we need to understand, and that is point number two, that the uh, current war is not just Russian-Ukrainian war. And that's not how Mr. Putin uh, uh, perceived it. 
If you follow his uh, uh, statements and long speeches where he tried to uh, rewrite the history, he's really uh, uh, trying to humiliate, first of all, the European Union, and he's trying to undermine uh, um, NATO. And in general, his statements about the European countries is something very weak and incapable. So for him, Washington is uh, the only equal partner with whom uh, he is ready to speak. That's why starting from December last year, he tried to um, initiate all these negotiations between Biden and Putin. As a result, uh, where we are now, we see that during this year, the rhetoric and demands regarding Ukraine uh, really being changed uh, from initial uh, statements about uh, a change of the government in Ukraine, uh, so-called denazification or the ideas of uh, neutral status to Ukraine. Then just a week ago, we heard that our original idea was not to change the government in Kiev, but just to uh, liberate, uh, as he called it, uh, the eastern regions of Ukraine. So each time we hear the uh, um, different statements, but all of them uh, de facto are aimed to one thing, to limit the sovereignty of Ukraine and the ability of Ukraine to develop as a state, so to undermine the statehood. And that is quite an important thing to understand because that is not a new idea and it's not something provoked by the NATO enlargement. For Mr. Putin, the dissolution of Soviet Union being the biggest um, tragedy of the 20th century and uh, he'd been trying to renew uh, something between the Russian Empire and Soviet Union but with the additional paranoidal um, ideas and in this structure of the world as he saw it uh, without controlling Ukraine and with Ukraine being pro-Western definitely nothing could happen. That's why um, what you have been witnessing within the last uh, months in Ukraine, it's been like the um, last resort, like bank activities. If original operations started with both land and air support, uh, so very quickly, especially the last week, we could see that uh, it's been the constant violation of the humanitarian law and of the practices of war. Uh, very heavy shellings of the uh, civilian water, civilian buildings, civilian premises. As for now, we have more than 300 uh, schools being bombed, more than 100 hospitals, even that all of them are properly marked. We had uh, shooting against the uh, uh, evacuation uh, convoys, uh, not, not one, so it was not an accidental. There have been quite a number reported, uh, uh, even... Uh, uh, with the media being uh, uh, there in, uh, within these convoys so they could record it on their videos, international media, I mean. That's also been uh, uh, the tremendous humanitarian crisis in the cities like Mariupol that has been besieged for the last several weeks uh, when the Russian forces have been rejecting um, both Ukrainian government and international organizations to deliver humanitarian aid there. Uh, my friend and colleague uh, just a week ago managed to escape from there with the uh, uh, first uh, uh, cars. And uh, she just said that for the last two weeks, uh, they needed to cook on the open fire, like in the, I don't know, third, fourth century. And uh, uh, the problem is that uh, um, it's been quite a cold and this spring is quite a cold. So you can imagine that a lot of people being in uh, uh, extreme conditions over there, including kids. Uh, targeting kids as well, you've seen plenty of examples. Let's remember the awful pictures of the Mariupol maternity house, of the uh, 
uh, theater that being bombed uh, despite a big sign that it is there. But why it is important that using of the long-range missiles, many of them from 500 till 2,100 kilometers, is a clear demonstration of uh, first trying not to be under the attack, second not caring about what you are targeting, because uh, all uh, goals were not military targets for the last um, several weeks. Uh, blockade as well is definitely not within the practice um, of what is happening. As for now, we have uh, uh, several projects, international projects, uh, that are documenting the war crimes. And uh, as uh, maybe you already heard that International Court of Justice and International Criminal Court started the um, investigation, the special prosecutor already visited Ukraine, and the process being initiated uh, regarding the genocide um, convention. So uh, even in uh, this organization, this institution named the things not just the war crimes, but the genocide, um, investigating, first of all, the cases of Kharkiv and uh, Mariupol, but also Chernigiv, Bucha, Irpeny, and plenty of the other um, uh, towns, mostly on the north and on the um, east. What is important to understand that while their military actions are predominantly happening on the north and on the east, however, uh, Russia is targeting uh, um, the whole territory of the country. For example, just a few days ago, it had been uh, uh, shelling with the missiles the city of Lviv, and that is the western border of Ukraine. So it is 1,000 kilometers from the east, and that is just 70 kilometers from the border with the European Union and NATO countries. Uh, the same thing happening in Odessa, the city where we're now, the seaport that is blocked uh, completely for the navigation. And each day we have several attempts of either the uh, airstrikes or the um, uh, Navy artillery strikes against the uh, uh, coast. And uh, uh, that's something that is demonstrating that the Russians would like to uh, um, control the whole territory of the country. Uh, the uh, uh, next issue is definitely trying um, not to allow any support coming uh, to Ukraine from the international partners, because we already heard plenty of statements from the uh, uh, Russian officials that in case Poland or any other country would uh, uh, deliver supplies, they would uh, consider this as the military um, uh, targets uh, to Ukraine. Uh, so uh, um, also what is important to understand that this military operation is accompanied with the huge um, misinformation and propaganda operation. However, uh, this um, uh, propaganda is uh, uh, two-headed, we can say it like this. First is uh, uh, domestic propaganda inside of the Russian Federation, where you see that 70% of population, according to their polls, support these military actions. And at the same time, a very strong uh, propaganda campaign in the, uh, um, in the international media. And uh, here we see a very strong uh, Russian influence to the uh, Indian Chinese media. But also we see how it's not often Russian experts directly who are speaking because it is a certain level of mistrust. But they started to use their proxies in many of the countries when they are coming to the local TV, radio, um, media, and uh, promoting exactly the Russian narratives about the war. One of them is uh, this idea of the Nazi. Uh, that's originally we laughed from it, but then we saw how easily it can be solved to the Western um, societies. Uh, the problem is that. Even in general, the uh, nationalistic parties in Ukraine never got more than 2% of support. The last election of 2019 demonstrated it. 
altogether 2%. Uh, let's remember what is the far-right parties have in Italy, in Germany, and in many other, even in France and other European countries. So definitely nothing to, to compare. Uh, the second are uh, uh, the created myths of Azov as something, I don't know, the uh, barbarian organization or something uncontrolled Nazi organization. Uh, what is also quite a um, mythological made by Russia because uh, Azov is just a regiment. It is 2,000 people under the uh, National Guard of Ukraine, under the Ministry of Interior. So it is the official uh, governmental uh, uh, military part. Uh, but also, uh, they are definitely not Nazi, neo-Nazi, how, how it's called in the international media. Uh, there can be few people inside uh, among them uh, uh, with their personal views uh, like this, but many of them are Russian speakers, for example, or Jewish. So uh, uh, that's, that's definitely the myths that probably is one of the most successful for the Russian. The second active idea that we see now is uh, uh, trying to undermine NATO, NATO support to Ukraine. And that is also very, uh, uh, probably, uh, um, how to say, it, a very successful narrative uh, that is trying to show that NATO is very weak, European Union is very weak, uh, they cannot support Ukraine, they cannot do anything, that's why, why you should join them, why you should stay there. And we see that this propaganda is working uh, both for Ukraine, uh, for Moldova, for Georgia, uh, for Balkan states. We just recently had a closed-door research that demonstrated it. Uh, but also we see that this narrative is actively spread now in the member states even, uh, trying to undermine the reliability of, uh, of both of NATO and the European uh, Union very actively. Are um, the narratives, uh, I can here for hours like bio laboratories what was another uh, um, myths created but the, the issue is that uh, such narratives appeared quite a uh, welcome and easily getting um, inside of the international media unfortunately and probably demonstrated that because talking about lessons learned that it's appeared that ukrainian society and ukrainian media appeared more um, resilient rather than uh, uh, European media. Because uh, we used, after these eight years, uh, to the questions of misinformation that sabotage uh, and proxy operations, uh, cyber operations can happen. Uh, so the society being much more resilient to these. However, when we compare the uh, uh, reaction in many of the European countries, we understand that um, neither their media nor the societies even politicians appeared ready for, uh, for this type of the hybrid um, warfare from the uh, Russian Federation. I would probably stop here not to uh, monopolize the whole time, but I will be ready um, to answer any of the questions that uh, you may have uh, about the current activities or about the current situation in Ukraine. Thank you so much, Ms. Schlest. We have uh, now to proceed uh, with our with our speakers, and then we have the debate on on the situation and on very interesting report made by Ms. Schlest. That we are grateful to be here again and to have this very important speaker. Now I give the floor to um, uh, to uh, 
actually okay to the president of the UF that uh, our secretary has uh, told us has actually arrived. Yeah. Hello. You have a floor, Mr. President. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm late because we are discussing exactly this issue in my political group here in the European Parliament. They thought it was important that our voice and our position was heard inside the group as we are approaching very important decisions. So this is why I join you only now. Uh, but thank you, for, 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 first of all, for, for your effort and for all the good work that, uh, that you are doing, that we are doing. Um, I would like to, um, to convey you uh, a few messages. The first is that, I mean, uh, there are two uh, unprecedented processes, uh, one tragic and the other one awful, that uh, are uh, crossing each other uh, today in Europe. The, the, the one is the one you have been speaking about, is the Russian aggression, the Putin aggression against uh, against Ukraine uh, and uh, and the awful one it is uh, uh, the conference of the future of union and the reform process that uh, it should trigger and I think that uh, we have to focus on this uh, link um, in the sense uh, what, what do I mean with that I, I mean that uh, it is clear that uh, our reasons our positions, uh, our call, notably for a union of defense, a union of energy, an institutional reform uh, of the way the European Union functions in the field of security, foreign policy, uh, defense, um, they all today are magnified, amplified, and uh, more clear, clearer. Uh, more evident in the eyes of the public opinion uh, compared to a few weeks or months ago. Um, I, uh, I never seen so many uh, articles on debate uh, on uh, the need uh, <clears throat> to uh, develop a European defense. I've never seen open debate uh, like in these days about uh, in Germany or in Italy the need to comply with the commitment taken uh, within NATO to reach the 2% of the defense expenditure. Uh, I never seen uh, the nationalists uh, so embarrassed about uh, the obsolescence of their discourse about national sovereignty uh, and the need uh, to uh, recover somehow. It makes me laugh, but also it's a good sign for us that in Italy or France, uh, uh, former sovereignists now are calling for a truly European defense. Uh, it is clear that this is a mix of uh, emotional reaction or political opportunism, but it is also a ground on which we have, uh, which is very fertile for uh, us. This is why we have to push as we are part of the process as we are member of the Conference of the Future of Union, but not only observer, we have to strongly push to have a very uh, meaningful outcome of this process, especially on the issue of uh, defense, and especially on the issue of uh, security. 
also on many other issues, but this is the topic we are talking about uh, tonight. And uh, I think that uh, this is uh, the battle that we have to do from here to the 9th of May. Then we can talk about many things, uh, but uh, there are things that are not in control of UEF. I like very much your work. Um, we have also to think uh, where we can make the difference as an NGO. Uh, we can make a different NGO to seize the momentum and to mobilize uh, the public opinion in order to take a bold step ahead in, the, in this field, certainly Union of Defense, Union of, of Energy. Uh, uh, and this is going to be uh, possible, but difficult, possible because, uh, because it, is, uh, it is a subject of the, of the day, of these days, um, how we can uh, to be, be more autonomous <coughs> in the field of energy, how we can uh, better provide to our defense. Uh, but it is going to be uh, very difficult to uh, really launch a, a reform process because, you know, we have informed you, we have uh, organized a briefing, a debriefing on the conference, the Future of Union uh, um, yesterday uh, with, uh, with the UEF. Uh, you know, there are the strong res resistance uh, in uh, uh, ensuring an important, uh, meaningful follow-up uh, to the Conference of the Future of the of Union. We are working uh, to have a, a bold position uh, ahead of the end of the conference, especially on, on these issues. But I think that uh, what we must do, it is uh, mobilize uh, at any level, at national level, uh, mobilize our, <clears throat> our, I mean, uh, our members, but to try also to reach out to opinion makers and to policy makers in your respective uh, member state in order to, uh, to not lose this opportunity. Um, then it is clear that uh, there are also uh, many other aspects which uh, are emerging in this crisis that we can uh, tackle, we must tackle without uh, uh, particular reform, but simply to take uh, to take in to take uh, the necessary legislative and political means. For example, I heard the part, the last part of Anna Celeste's uh, intervention on disinformation. On this, we have all the means uh, to fight against disinformation without waiting for the next reform. Uh, if you look at the uh, at the foundings of our special inquiries committee on disinformation and foreign and interference on foreign powers into our democratic processes. Uh, if you look uh, uh, to the uh, proposal for which I'm a rapporteur in the parliament on political advertising, if you look uh, at the new uh, measure announced uh, under which we have to be serious about cybersecurity, you see that today already the union has the possibility of taking the right measures to fight against the awful disinformation, which uh, is not going on only now. It has been going on in the last 10 years in our member state. Uh, the disinformation accompanied the, the Brexit referendum, disinformation accompanied the Italian referendum on the constitutional reform in 2016. The information is, uh, is uh, hitting uh, many of us, me included, which have been the victim of many attacks by uh, probably Russian trolls, uh, certainly organized uh, political crime organization. So, I mean, we know the things and on this, uh, we simply have to push on the European Union to take the necessary uh, 
the necessary political uh, political step, political initiative. But this is my last message, and I will listen a little bit, and at seven, I will leave you. My last message is uh, we have, uh, we don't have to reinvent the world as we have, but we have uh, to have, uh, we have we, we need to show the capacity of reading and interpreting this uh, moment, the historical moment, and try to make the best of the ongoing processes. And uh, we really have to redouble our effort in these uh, weeks ahead of us in order to, uh, to prepare the next reform. It is clear that what I mean is that uh, uh, on one side, we have to take the necessary political and legislative measures. You, in the work of your political committees, you have, you have bright ideas on that. On the other, we have to open a, a reform of the Union, Article 48, and I'm convinced that the European Parliament should trigger this time the revision process according to its prerogatives as foreseen by the treaty, exactly Article 48. So thank you very much for your commitment. Let's be focused and let's try to make a difference as far as we can with our forces and with our commitment. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your very meaningful message, Mr. President. And uh, uh, I, uh, uh, I end off the floor to uh, Professor Triantafilo, Deputy Chair uh, of the Political Commission of Foreign Security Policy and Professor in International Relations. Thank you so much. You have the floor, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it has been um, a very interesting discussion um, up to now, uh, listening very carefully to Hannah Shalestan and the President. Um, and, you know, in preparation, in a way, for, for this meeting and, and the work we're trying to do in, in our political committee, I had prepared a background paper, which uh, some of you have seen, and I'm going to try to set the stage because I think it's, it's, we need to do more, maybe in, in order to be able to achieve some of the things that the president mentioned. I mean, the, 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 the war in the Ukraine, Russia's aggression on Ukraine, uh, has led us to what? To, to uh, a sense of unity uh, that has arisen in the West, but in particular in Europe. But it's a unity out of strategic necessity rather than by choice. And this is the reality. And we are also doing something else, which is trying to fight a war without actively being involved in it. And I think this is part of our challenge. And, and what do I mean? I, you know, we are, the Ukrainians are doing the fighting. We are trying to help them um, but, but we are trying to avoid the spreading. And when I say we, our countries, uh, EU member states in particular, trying to avoid being directly involved in the conflict, trying to avoid that the war spills over Ukraine's borders to EU borders and other borders. Uh, and, and part of the way we're doing this is through a sort of a financial economic warfare with sanctions that have been imposed. Um, but, but there are also so many other things at stake. And, and if we think a little bit of what has been achieved uh, since the war started, uh, at least on our end, it's remarkable. Some of it Hannah Schelest uh, talked, referred to, which is, you know, uh, the ICC coming on board, the International Court of Justice, uh, you know, investigating war crimes. Uh, on March 4th, the UN Human Rights Council also established a committee to investigate these crimes. We've had two United Nations resolutions where the EU and its member states have played an active role in achieving wide consensus on the 4th, uh, on the 20, 2nd of March and 24th of March. And also, we've had since um, the 10th, 11th of March with the Versailles Declaration, a framework 
a fundamental framework uh, of, of how to proceed. And I'll get the, back to this with, uh, uh, with reference to the declaration. So we had the Versailles Summit on the 10th, 11th of March. And then last week, a, a number of, of meetings and, and events with important decisions. Maybe not exactly what we would want, but in the right direction, starting with the Foreign Affairs Council meeting on the 21st of March, uh, the 24th of March, the, NATO, the EU Council meeting, the NATO summit, and the G7 meeting, the agreement on, uh, and of course, with, the, U with uh, the European Council meeting, the adoption of, of the strategic compass, which is very relevant, the agreement with the United States on energy, at least dealing with the situation in the short term, and of course, fundamentally, and I think if there are two dates that mark the new era we are in, one is the start of the war, the 24th of February, but the other one is the 26th of March with uh, President Biden's speech in Warsaw. President Biden's speech in Warsaw, for all the hoopla about what he said at the end about, and whether this implies regime change in Russia or not, the relevance is not that. The relevance is one, listens to the speech, to me, it reminds me of the March 5th speech, 1946, Churchill in Fulton, Missouri, the Iron Curtain speech and the sinews of, speech, of, of, of uh, peace speech. It draws the dividing lines. Uh, it's difficult, of course, to get us on board in the sense that it draws very clear dividing lines, but especially when we are in a war context without actually being involved in the way we would see this war. And if we put all of these together, plus the meeting yesterday, which is also because it has another dimension, which uh, some of these meetings have not really talked about, uh, the Home Affairs meeting and the 10-point plan, uh, Home Affairs Council, and the 10-point plan that uh, came out on, uh, on, on uh, European coordination regarding the welcoming of refugees and so on, it's also relevant to put that into context. So it actually means that there's a moral, ethical dimension, which means that you know, the idea of Europe as, as the one we live in and the ones we've been living in uh, for decades is at stake. And, and what are the borders of Europe? Uh, the, physical, the, the borders, the institutional borders of Europe, but also the borders beyond that, because there are countries that do want to join us. And one of them, of course, is Ukraine, in that they've expressed that they share the same values. There's a geopolitical dimension, undoubtedly, uh, but there's also a domestic dimension, because if we fail, if we fail to, to unite, if we fail to sustain the unity and to move ahead on some of the things that the president talked about, which is the defense union, um, the energy union, but also I would say uh, refugees migration issue, which we have to address over the long term, uh, as well as a food security union or other things linked to this. The Green Deal, because we, this brings in as well the, the whole issue about uh, trend, climate uh, change and the cri climate crisis and transition. Um, then there's an issue that if we don't sustain this, this effort, uh, well, the sovereignists, the populists, and others might come back to power. And even though right now, yes, they might have adopted their positions in favor of, of a defense union and so on, it's not a given that you know, the pro-European forces in power right now in Europe, or you know, if, even the main opposition parties that are pro-European, and this unity, the sense of unity that has been formed, can be sustained. And already, if we look at polls in individual countries, it's in some countries, there's much more support for what we are doing. In other countries, it's, it's a much more nuanced support. And this is something to consider. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with the misinformation that adds on to it. 
but it has to do with national, natural reflexes of member states, depending on their geography, depending on their history, depending on, on their dealings with, with uh, 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 Russia or, or Ukraine and so on and so forth. And, and so we have to sort of look at all these things in, in prospect, uh, energy, food security, refugees integration, defense, uh, and linked to defense is also the whole issue of foreign policy and, and strategic autonomy and, and, and decisions that have to be taken regarding uh, how we vote or on what decisions we can be unanimity uh, as opposed to, to a qualified majority. Linked to this also is another issue which none of the texts really address other than you, you know, addressing Europe's, uh, Ukraine's European vocation and looking into their demand to, to join the Union uh, and also Moldova's and Georgia's is a whole issue of enlargement, which you know, is something that we need to really consider how it can become unstuck. And even if enlargement per se with the Western Balkan countries that are on board, and even though we already have doubts there regarding Serbia uh, or with Turkey, or now with the three countries, um, Ukraine, Georgia, and, and Moldova that want to join. Or tomorrow, we know very well what the will of the Belarus people are, never mind what the regime says. Uh, and I would even say the Armenian people, uh, never mind what their government, where it's stuck. But how do we move ahead with this uh, uh, is, is something to consider. And, and consider options and put out options and ideas, whether we have a, a semi-accession regime or alternative forms of enlargement, but something to give an impetus to this whole process, because these are the countries that actually have expressed a, 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 a hope, a willingness to join our, our European, fa our family. Linked to this is also the issue of development, right? And, and I think if one looks both at Versailles Declaration, one looks also at the European Council conclusions of last week, these things are very clear there. Uh, bolstering our defense capabilities, reducing our energy dependencies, building a more robust economic base, where we are addressing the transition from digital to a green and digital world, addressing the issues of reshoring, the, geo, you know, the, the whole globalization and, and whether this can, has to be modified, where there is particular reference to strategic dependencies uh, on critical raw materials, semiconductors, health, digital, food, and so on, and fostering investment. And remember, before this war broke out, uh, we, uh, you, there was a growth strategy for Europe somehow in place. And all of this has been upended. Where we've come, in particular, when we talk about, in particular, when we talk about the food crisis and we talk about the energy crisis, uh, there's a direct link to inflation. And, and many economists are fearing the potential of stagflation, right? Stagflation of the 1970s and the impact this would have, which also means raising the stakes. We have to look because, you know, we are convinced among ourselves of what needs to be done. We might have differences on, on aspects of how to move forward, uh, but, but how about addressing the wider public? And, 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 you know, maybe there's a need here for a new social contract as well. Because I think part of the problem is we talk among ourselves, and the president is correct, we need to address our policymakers, uh, write our articles, try to invent, uh, to, to convince public opinion. But is that enough? And, and because all these things we are talking about, all these things we're talking about imply resources. And this is the big divide. They all imply money. And this is the big divide among ourselves or among our countries. Obviously, the ideas are there about the European bond or whatever it is, because we need to borrow the money to, to, to invest. I mean, I, I see it akin in a way to, uh, 
you know, basically what we need is a new Marshall Plan, which is a European Marshall Plan, where we are the ones putting in the money. It's akin to, you know, losing five of the 15 extra kilos we carry if we compare ourselves to what the weight of our parents and grandparents in 1945. So we invest this because of, you know, the, the wealth accrued over the years and our societies, invest this so that we can regain them back and, 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 and ensure that the union is not just addressing a crisis, because crisis does shape uh, very much historically how the union moves forward, but sets a fundamental basis for this. But the social contract is important in terms of both protecting the most vulnerable uh, and also spreading, sharing, spreading the burden of the economic shock uh, and ensuring long-term political support, which also means, again, the issue of democratic deficit comes up. Uh, the issue of democratic deficit comes up so we need somehow to put this in a more public. And I think there are two things that we can do. I know there's already a trend here uh, to sort of revise and revamp the Vento Tene Manifesto. I would think this is necessary and how we frame it. I would even call it, uh, it should have the title of the Mariupol Manifesto because Mariupol represents the new Guernica or the new Coventry or the new Stalingrad in terms of the the destruction and actually the ideals of what it represents. Uh, but one is this, and then maybe one of the things we also need is a new Schuman Declaration. And this is where some of the political elites in Europe do need to get together to come up with a pithy text of two pages of which what the Schuman Declaration was and laid the groundwork again to motivate societies, to, to tell, address these are the stakes. It's not an 11-page long Versailles declaration or the UCO statements, but something pithy, something which says this is what we need to do because we are in a war economy situation right now and because we need the basis for the future to endure the geopolitical challenges that are coming. If we look at a map of the world with the countries that are actually involved in the sanctions, well, we are very few compared to the rest of the world. We are very few. Yes, we are powerful enough together to be able to have an impact on the global economy. But we know this is also changing. And, you know, I was looking back in some of the uh, very interesting blog that the, the high representative has, and even a blog post, which had always struck me. He had written it back in December 2020, as, and it was a post about strategic autonomy. And part of the reasoning that Borrell had put down there had to do with this the economy. We know very well that, you know, we might have a 25% share of the global economy today. It's going to be going down to about 11 to 12% within the next two decades. And, and, and that's part of the reason as to why we need to increase our weight in the world and work together to, to strengthen our base. And I think this crisis provides an opportunity as well for Europe to be able to withstand whatever shocks might come in the future. So, so basically, again, I'm trying to, to limit my discussion, uh, my, my comments so that we can have a discussion. Uh, my paper has much more on this, but also there the issues come up, the role for the European Parliament. Uh, the president has talked and you know, what is post-conference on the future of Europe and what, what can be done because a democratic deficit is something that keeps coming up. Uh, uh, then on particular issues, when we talk about the food crisis, do we need to put in proposals, for example, reforming CAP, common agricultural policy? Because CAP was supposed to be about food security, and maybe this is something to look at. When it comes to the nuclear issue, it's not just the nuclear deterrence issue, but the nuclear safety issue. Does Eurotom play a role? Do we have to look into it? We know, remember what happened at, at the power plant 
uh, in Chernobyl and, and the other one in Ukraine and, and, and the issues that have come up from it. So there are a number of things that we need to consider. And even though this political committee does focus on foreign policy and defense policy, we cannot disconnect these issues uh, uh, from A, what do we do in terms of advancing defense, the defense union and the energy union, which has an external dimension, from all the other, which have also an internal dimension, and also, therefore, really respecting ourselves and, 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 and supporting uh, our Ukrainian partners uh, that are fighting for their lives and fighting for ourselves, ultimately, because if the world is actually divided, uh, and as I said, a reread of Biden's speech is important because I think it touches all of us in terms of what uh, the, the American president has put down. If the world is actually divided in terms of um, the multilateral world that we believe in and its institutions and to and, 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 and the more multipolar world and, 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 and uh, autocratic regimes that might not necessarily agree with each other, but, but do have an anti-West, anti-Europe sentiment, well, we need to do something to ensure that we survive this new world and this new challenge and, and grow from it. Uh, and, and I think this is sort of where we are, and I think this is where our debate needs to go and, and come out with proposals that are tangible, because there are ways of doing this. Yes, the, the president talked about... Uh, Article 48 and, and reform, but we have the mechanisms right now in the treaties to start addressing many of these issues, right? Because this is another way of moving forward. And, and I think we are also, uh, uh, at, at, at a lot of them have sort of, you know, especially when it comes to the strategic compass and some of the elements in there about some of the articles that exist in the treaties, and we are trying finally to move forward with them uh, and many others. But, but before we go to reform, which might be in parallel, Let's see what we have and let's try to get to a consensus as to how we need to do this. Um, and finally, also, uh, as we also try to shape and define the new security ar architecture, um, what is going to be the future regarding Russia's role in it? Uh, might not have one right now, but it will have at some stage. It, during the Cold War, it took a few decades before we got to the Helsinki consensus of you know, the mid-1970s and started moving forward. But what is Russia's role in this? We cannot have a European security architecture without Russia just as much without Ukraine and anyone else. Uh, what is the role for non-EU uh, non NATO member states uh, and, and the difficult sort of balancing game um, that exists with them? And also, in a way, it's also very good that we have a strategic compass out, which a lot of what is there will reflect in NATO's strategic concept that's coming out in the summer. Um, so I, I'll stop it at that. I'm ready to take your questions, but listen to the debate and, and uh, let's see how we as a political committee can move ahead with drafting a, a, a relevant uh, resolution. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dimitrius, for your, uh, for your very nice speech. And I, uh, I, would, uh, uh, I would start the the debate from from the audience.